This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have an episode of your Homefront Reporter, as it was broadcast over CBS on October 13, 1943. Sponsored by the Owens Illinois Glass Company, the series was aimed at housewives and aired every afternoon, Monday through Friday. It was hosted by first Fletcher Wiley, and then, as this episode is, by Don Pryor. It offered a mix of entertainment, war news, and tips on making the most of limited resources at home. The show ran from May to November of 1943. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Cooperation with the United States government, the Owens, Illinois Glass Company, developers of Duraglass containers, present another program with America's favorite home front news hawk and afternoon dropper inner, Don Pryor, your popular tenor, Phil Regan, and David Brookman and his orchestra. I pray that God will bless and keep Now there's an enemy in your kitchen. Open air. Enemy to precious vitamin C in tomato juice or fruit juice. Exposure to air, even in your closed refrigerator, robs juices of this vital element. Wise housewives combat the vitamin enemy by keeping fruit and vegetable juices in their own Duraglass containers. That way it's so easy to serve what's needed and put the airtight cap back on, keeping the juice ice cold, vitamin rich, and ready to serve again. David Brookman and the orchestra open today's program with The Dancing Doll by Poldini.
Now our popular 20th Century Fox star, Phil Regan, sings a brand new tune. I've had that feeling before. I've had that feeling before, but never like this. Love had me reeling before, but never like this. Who ever dreamed it could happen to someone supposed to be I must have really been napping to let you walk off with my heart, my dreams, and I've had quite a few, were never like this, this is too good to be true, but so Next, we hear from our home front reporter, Don Pryor, with today's late news. Thank you, Hugh Conover, and good afternoon. The big news today is Italy's declaration of war against her former Axis partner, Germany. It was announced shortly before noon in a joint statement by President Roosevelt, Prime Minister Churchill, and Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union. So from now on, Italy will fight at the side of England, Russia, and the United States, but not as a full-fledged ally. She will have the status of a co-belligerent, but the terms of the armistice signed on September 8th still hold. Meanwhile, the Allied armies in Italy are pushing forward again. The British 8th has advanced in the Termoli area on the Adriatic and pushed westward in the direction of Rome. And on the westward side, the American 5th Army has put the harbor of Naples in commission again and has been bombarding the Germans across the Volturno River. In Russia, Berlin reports a new, powerful Soviet drive north of Kiev, and there's one report that the Germans are evacuating Gomel. There have been no important changes in the Pacific, but the Japanese claim that they have bombed Madras on the east coast of India and Ceylon at the southern tip. Reports from Switzerland say that Patriot troops have occupied part of the Croat capital of Zagreb. 
And in the House of Commons today, Prime Minister Churchill warned that the worst fighting of the war lies ahead. In Washington this morning, Secretary Ickes announced the return of the nation's coal mines to their owners. He took over 3,300 mines, you remember, during the summer to end the deadlock between the operators and John L. Lewis, chief of the United Mine Workers Union. During the last few weeks, he returned about half the mines to their owners, and the rest were handed back today. Already, however, some miners have gone out on strike. Five mines are idle today in Alabama, and the miners explain that it's a protest against the return of the mines to private operators. Speaking of coal, how would you like to find a million tons of it already mined? Because that's just about what happened in Pottsville, Pennsylvania the other day. An official of the Stevens Coal Company there recently remembered that there were huge banks of so-called waste coal piled up about ten miles out of town. It was mined half a century ago and forgotten because it was small-sized coal, and at, at that time it wasn't big enough to put on the market. But it's perfectly good anthracite, about enough hard coal to heat 100,000 homes all winter long. This is a story about fish and about fishing. American boys are stationed all around the world in all kinds of strange places. While their primary job is fighting the enemy, for a great many of them it means chiefly a job of waiting, standing guard on lonely outposts. For them, the problem of recreation is all important. A lot of them, of course, were fishermen back here at home, and when they get the chance and can take time out from war, they still love to handle a rod and reel. For them, one of the best of all Christmas presents is on its way. It's a specially designed, compact little fishing kit that weighs less than a pound and is small enough to be carried in a soldier's pocket. But it's so complete that it can be used to snag strange tropical fish in waters of the South Pacific or cod up around Newfoundland or salmon in the bays of Alaska. It was designed by Michael Lerner, chairman of the Tackle Committee of the International Game Fish Association, Philip Wiley, the writer, and Julian Crandall, the sportsman. The first shipment of a total of 20,000 of these little fishing kits were presented to the Red Cross the other day by, by Mr. Lerner and are now on their way overseas. This first batch of 1,000 kits went to the West Coast to be shipped from there to Alaska and the Aleutians. The rest will be distributed all around the globe. And speaking of fish... We're all in for a great big national fish fry, if the government and the fishing in industry have anything to say about it, and apparently they have. You're going to get more fish than you've ever had before in your life. And before the year is over, you'll probably be eating fish you never even knew existed and liking them. Before the war, millions and millions of pounds of fish were thrown away every year, just because it didn't happen to be haddock or cod or mackerel or one of the few other fish the American public had become accustomed to. But when the meat shortage came along, things began to change. Somebody discovered mussels, and pretty soon they're going to appear on the market. Harold Ickes took up the campaign and issued a bulletin in praise of st shark steaks. Said Mr. Ickes, two million pounds can be added to the nation's food supply this year from shark alone, instead of being tossed back into the sea after the liver has been extracted for oil. Some people laughed at that. But now the demand for shark meat has grown to such proportions along the eastern seaboard that fishermen can't fill their orders. Restaurant managers and food distributors are so enthusiastic that their orders have already outrun the supply for the immediate future. Shark, you know, is white meat, a lot like swordfish in texture and like haddock in flavor. And shark isn't alone. There's the silver hake, the monkfish, the skate, and many more you probably have never heard of. All of them used to be thrown away, and now they're on their way to your dinner table. Before you're through, you'll be happy about the whole thing. Instead of asking your butcher plentifully for pot roast, you'll ask for ocean pout, maybe. Or instead of a side of ham, you'll take some haddock. Thank you, Don Pryor. 
David Brookman directs the orchestra in the spirited Tambourin Chinois by Fritz Kreisler. Jacques Gasserin is the soloist. Now back again to Don Pryor for news of importance on the home front. Back on the subject of fuel, the Office of War Information issued a warning to motorists this morning that they can expect poorer gasoline and less of it. The reason is that a large share of the fuel produced in the east, southeast, and midwest must be shipped abroad in 1944 and 1945. The OWI report says that the domestic gasoline shortage will keep on getting worse for the duration. And even the Pacific Coast, which took one cut already this week, can expect more severe rationing as time goes on. War Ration Book 4 will be distributed between Monday, October 18th and Saturday, October 30th, according to an announcement by the Office of Price Administration. 
The exact date in each local community will be decided by your local war price and rationing board, so be sure to watch for the announcement. You'll have to register again to get the new book, too. And when the time comes, go to the place designated by your local board and take along the number three ration books for your whole family. Incidentally, applications for renewal of gasoline rations must be made before October 21st. That's a reminder from the Office of Price Administration. And one other reminder. Friday is the deadline for getting your Christmas packages off to soldiers and sailors overseas. If you need help in putting your packages together, call the nearest USO clubhouse. A lot of these clubhouses have volunteers on hand who are busier than a hive of bees right now helping mothers do just that. The other day there was a story on the wire that reminded me of several things. It was a story about a new Liberty ship that was being launched down in Houston, Texas. They were naming the ship after a merchant seaman who had lost his life. That struck me as a fine idea, an appropriate gesture. It reminded me of a scheme they have out at the Lockheed Aircraft Plant in Burbank, California. I was going through the factory there one day, watching them build the famous lightning fighters, when I saw a peculiar insignia on the cockpit of one of the machines. I asked about it. It seems that Lockheed has several thousand men in the armed forces all around the world. Some of them have lost their lives. And this plane was dedicated to one of those boys. A shield was painted on the side of the cockpit, bearing the man's name. Alongside was a printed card recording his history, his years of service with the company, the date of his entry into the Army, and the time and place of his death. At the top of the shield was the Latin inscription, uh, Resurgum, which means, I shall rise again. That, I thought, was a fitting tribute to a gallant man, and it also seems to have a salutary effect upon his fellow workmen in the plant. Then there's another story about a different kind of ship. I went out to the home of Andrew Jackson Higgins, the famous boat builder in New Orleans, one Sunday morning for an interview. Somehow we began talking about odd coincidences and strange stories that have come out of the war. So Mr. Higgins told me the story of the first tank ladder he built for the Navy. It was a rush order, and he had to get it out almost immediately, but there was no material available. So he put a crew of men to work, and they built the ship, a rugged 50-foot tank carrier overnight, out of little pieces of scrap metal that they welded together. The next morning, they put it on a flat car and shipped it east. Before it left, however, they burned a name in its side. They called it USS Patches. Mr. Higgins, of course, thought that Patches would merely serve a term as a trial ship. But instead, she's still going strong, and she's established a reputation that reaches clear around the world. Sometime after she finished her tests at Norfolk, Mr. Higgins received a letter from a Navy officer on the North Atlantic Patrol. Why, he asked, why in heaven's name did you manufacture a landing boat of every variety and thickness of metal? It just came in with the boys landing on Iceland, he said. Sometime later, another report came through that the patches had been seen down the Caribbean. And just a few weeks ago, another Navy officer told Mr. Higgins this story. One of your boats out in the South Pacific, he said, has been in every landing down there. There's a regular legend about her. She's heavy and ugly as sin. She has too many sharp corners. But she gets there, and they all love her. They call her the Patches. You've heard about red tape, haven't you? Well, Sergeant Carmine DeSanto, stationed somewhere in the Pacific, telephoned his family here in New York on his 26th birthday. The censor gave him permission to speak to his father and his two sisters, specifically. When the sergeant's sister tried to get her six-month-old daughter to gurgle for Uncle Carmine on the phone, the censor cut in quickly. Sorry, he said. Regulations, you know. This person is not listed. And how's this for good business? 
Out in La Jolla, California, near San Diego, a woman rented eight rooms in her home. She rented her garage for living purposes. She built a new garage and rented that for living quarters. Then she pitched a tent in the yard and rented that. And she even set up a bed under a canopy in the backyard and rented that. The Office of Price Administration commended the woman and then ordered her to cut rents by 50%. sings again. This time, the lovely ballad, I Wouldn't Trade the Silver in Mother's Hair for All the Gold in the World. I wouldn't trade the silver in my mother's hair for all the gold in the world. The that rocked my cradle through my baby days are treasures from the sky that money cannot buy. God gave us mothers and tried to be fair, but when I got more than my share. I wouldn't pray the silver in my mother's hand for all the gold in the China, Russia, Britain, Greece. Once it was hard to decide which war relief to give to. There were so many. They needed help so desperately. Now, by making one donation to the National War Fund, your contribution is apportioned among 17 war-related agencies and many local agencies for home front aid. It sends food, medicine, clothing to our allies, supports the USO, takes food and comforts to men in prison camps, provides rest and recreation for merchant seamen. Don't close your heart. Even though it means doing without something yourself, give and give generously to the National War Fund through your United Community Campaign. Let your heart decide. 
this same time, the Owens, Illinois Glass Company will present another program with your home front scout, Don Pryor, Bill Regan, and David Brookman and his orchestra. Hugh Conover speaking. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 